Well, it's a joy of mine to be able just to continue to lead us in our liturgy as we open up the Bible together. Now, in case you are new or visiting or maybe just haven't been with us for a little while, uh, we as a church, we've been walking through which book? The book of Genesis, right? That very first book of the Bible. And we've been seeing through Genesis of how basically the story of God began, at least from our angle. Right? How the story of humanity began. Now, we are taking a break from walking through the book of Genesis expositionally, because as I mentioned, I want to take, along with just the the church calendar, to focus in for a moment of time of what happened this week, all those years ago, in the life of Jesus. Because I think there's some absolutely critical events that happen that we have to highlight and really to know as Christians. And, and the longer that I've been pastoring, I'll be honest, some things that you think maybe if you've been in church for a long time that you would know or, or maybe have experience with, I'm finding out that it's, that's not always the case, right? You can have grown up in the church, right? Maybe gone to church every single Sunday, maybe twice a week, but yet still not have a firm understanding of some of the most important events in the life of Jesus. Mainly, his life, his death, his resurrection, and his ascension. And his ascension. So we are going to be looking at all of those in particular over the next several weeks. But as many of you have probably noticed, we're going to do that under the banner or under the motif of Jesus as King. As king, looking at the broader kingdom of God, looking at what all of what Jesus accomplished, it's from a king-like role. It's from a kingdom perspective. Because there's no surprises when it comes to the plan of God. So when you look at Jesus as king, I want to do that by actually going back to the Old Testament. Because one of the benefits that I've really enjoyed actually walking through the book of Genesis with all of you is we've been able to see how Genesis actually sets a trajectory of where all of the Bible ends up going, right? We've been able to see how Genesis predicts or alludes or foreshadows the work of Christ. I know many of you you guys have told me, like, that's been your favorite part of actually studying Genesis so far. And so during the next several weeks, I want to look at Jesus as king, but also look at that from the Old Testament. Because the Old Testament has much to say on the subject. And now there's a lot of places we could go in the Old Testament when, we, when we're thinking about Jesus as king. I'm going to look at one in particular, but to be quite honest, we're going to be kind of looking at a few different texts in our time today. And the one in particular that I want to highlight, and, and this is where I want you to turn your Bible, is the Second Samuel, chapter 7, and we're going to pick it up in verse 12, verse 12 to verse 17. If you're using one of those uh, Black Pew Bibles, that's going to be on page 259. So 2 Samuel, chapter 7, starting in verse 12. Now, as you are finding your way there, let me just go ahead and go into another time of prayer Specifically, I want to pray for you, and I'm asked that as I do that, you'd pray for me, and then we'll look at the Bible together. Well, Father, once again, we just want to come to you, 
just knowing that you are a good, gracious, sovereign, mighty God. And God, I, I want to particularly just come to you with just open hands. Lord, knowing that I can present your word to your people. We can read it together. We can study it together. But Lord, it is your work that allows your word to get into the hearts and souls of those in this room. That can take a heart of stone and replace it with your heart. And so God, we just pray for the illumination of your word, just through your spirit, that we would be able to see clearly Jesus as king this morning. And God, we also want to pray for our kiddos next door as they are, are looking at this, this same section that even though they may have a, a smaller group over there and smaller ages, uh, they are functioning as a little church over there in a lot of ways. So God, we just pray that you would take their little hearts and just bring them to a, a point where they understand you and embrace you, Jesus, as Lord, Savior, but Lord, we all desperately need you. And so it's in your mighty name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right. Second Samuel chapter 7, starting in verse 12. Hopefully you found that. It should be on the screens as well. Let me go ahead and read it, and then I'll unpack why we're looking at this section. So when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. Verse 16, And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be forever, or shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words, and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. Church, that is the word of the Lord for us this morning. Thanks be to God indeed. All right, so before I actually look at this particular section that we just read, I want to give a little bit of a biblical theology. And biblical theology is basically how does all of the separate books of the Bible actually fit together? What, how do they build on top of each other? And I want to do so by looking at the kingdom of God when it comes to biblical theology. Because what we just read, church, in case maybe you're new to Bible study— uh, what we just read is often referred to as the Davidic Covenant. The Davidic Covenant. And I'll explain uh, that in a moment. But what I want to highlight is this is not where the story of God's kingdom or this language that there is a king actually begins in the Bible. In fact, if you remember, it actually started back in Genesis 1. In Genesis 1, where we actually learn about the kingdom of God. Because God was not only creating a physical place, right? He was not just only creating a physical earth, but he did so and used the language that he was creating a kingdom for his own purposes. Because a pretty good definition of the kingdom of God, this is by a pastor named Jeremy Treat, he says, the kingdom of God is God's reign through God's people in God's place. 
Okay, that's what the kingdom of God is. It's God's reign through God's people in God's place. And so from the beginning of Genesis, we learned about that, didn't we? We learned about, because what did God create? He created everything. So everything was a part of his rule in his reign. That everything belonged to him. And furthermore, even at the, the creation of humanity, do you remember how God spoke to Adam and Eve? What, what was their instructions? It was to rule and reign and subdue the earth by filling it. Right? To be royal representatives, if you will. So this language of kingdom in the kingdom of God was there from the very beginning. Because what a good king does, and I know we're not super familiar as Americans with, with kingdoms or dynasties, but what a good king does is he doesn't let part of his kingdom ever suffer or be in absence of his presence. A good king wants to rule and reign everywhere that his kingdom has established its, its, its reign. And so even when God told Adam, right, to, to go and to fill the earth, he was saying, go show all of the world how far my kingdom reaches to fill the earth. But what do we also know about God's kingdom in Genesis? That it was, it was fractured in a way, Right? It was fractured because of the entrance of sin and rebellion against the king, right? Against God. And so even though God never ceased to be king over his creation, Colossians actually tells us that when sin entered the world, right, that a separate kingdom also came with it. The Bible describes it as the kingdom of darkness. The kingdom of darkness. Now, this second kingdom, it's not equal to the kingdom of God. You've got to make sure of that. All right, it's not a yin-yang thing. God's kingdom is still ruling and reigning everywhere. But yet we have this rival, separate kingdom or domain of darkness then that is enticing humanity to join in on it with sin and rebellion against the king. So what does God do? What does God do with this kingdom of darkness? Well, he actually gives a promise, right? And where does that promise begin? In Genesis 3.15, right? We looked at this quite extensively through our Genesis series, and we're going to continue to do that in our study today because Genesis 3.15 is that linchpin of where all of the Bible is getting to. So, to re refresh your memory, what is Genesis 3.15? What is that promise? It's a promise that God made to Eve, really, and, and it was to Adam as well, but, but specifically to Eve. It said, through your seed, Eve, through your line, someone is going to come that is going to defeat this kingdom of darkness and is going to fully restore God's kingdom. And he's going to do that primarily by defeating the main architectures of the kingdom of darkness. And who, and who are they? Well, it's Satan, sin, and death. Satan, sin, and death. And though as we've been, and even when we've been looking at that Genesis promise, we can't forget, though, that God also said that that king that's coming, the one who's going to restore, is going to be bruised in the process 
It's going to crush the head of Satan. But in that process, is going to be bruised. So we're also introduced there that victory, if you will, is going to come through suffering. And it's going to be really important that victory is going to come through suffering as we progress through our next few sermons. So we get that initial promise in Genesis 3.15. But then where does the Bible go? Well, it continues, right, to develop the, the story of humanity and where they went. And as we were looking at Genesis, and if, you know, if we kept reading through Genesis, you would have seen that God was constantly highlighting or having moments of, of giving detail to who that, that seed of Eve was going to be, such as where was he going to come from? Right? What, what family line was he going to be a part of? And really, all of the Old Testament is giving these clues, often through what are known as these covenantal promises, of who this seed is going to be, right? The details behind it. For example, in Genesis 12, you could read that God makes a covenant with Abraham. And tells Abraham, it's going to be through your family line, Abraham, is who the Savior is going to come through. So we, we have, right, Eve, we know it's going to come through, through a woman, it's going to be a, a human. And then we get some more detail, it's going to actually come through this family of Abraham. And then at the end of Genesis, Genesis 49, we actually read that it's going to be through a tribe of Judah that the seed is going to come. And the Bible is constantly doing this, church. It's constantly giving details about this coming one. And so then when we get to 2 Samuel, right, our, our main text today, what we are seeing is a, another moment where God is giving clarity on who is this future king. Who is this person? Where is he going to come from? And we learn it's going to come not just through Eve, not just through Abraham, not just through the tribe of Judah, but then also through the line of David, through the line of David. And we also see very explicitly that this promised seed is going to be a king who lives forever. Now, let's go ahead and just look at this context then in 2 Samuel 7. David has been king of Israel for some time. Okay, I don't have time to go through all of the, the history there, but basically, God's people knew that they wanted a king. But instead of rejoicing that God was their king, they asked that they would have a king like every other nation. And so through this process of, initially Saul was the king of Israel, but then it led to this new king called King David. Many of you guys are familiar with David. So this is, we're picking it up, after David has had some victory as king, right, has had some prosperity for Israel, David is then talking to his friend and, and mentor and prophet Nathan, saying that he actually wants to now build a temple for God's presence to dwell in. Because at this point, God's presence had been dwelling in what is known as a tabernacle, the tabernacle tent. And so he's, he's admitting to David that he wants to build this temple. He wants to build this temple. But let's go ahead and look at verse 12. If you could pull that up, Taylor. So David says, I want to build this temple. But then Nathan 
comes to David and says, hey, God has given me a word to give to you regarding this. This is what we read, starting in verse 12. It says, when your days are fulfilled and when you lay down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, right, who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. Okay, so really quickly, and I don't want you guys to miss this, is what we see is actually God answering what David was hoping to do. But it doesn't do it in probably the way that David wanted God to answer. Right? David said, I want to build the, the temple. I want to do it for you, Lord. I want to be the one that does this. And what we see in verse 12 is God say, it's not you, and it's not today. It's not you, and it's not today. Another way of saying is, David, I know this is something that you want, and this is your timeline, but it's not my timeline. It's not God's timeline. Now, David could have pressed on. He could have pressed on on this, right? He, he had the resources to basically build whatever he wanted to build. But, and here's what I want to highlight just pastorally, it wasn't God's plan in this moment. It wasn't God's plan. It wasn't what God was telling him to do. David probably didn't like this. He probably wanted to build this temple. But yet, as we will see, he actually trusted in the plan of God. He submitted to God telling him, hey, it's not going to be you, and it's not going to be today. Now, if you know much about David's history, probably for him to get to this point to actually trust God's answer here, that was coming from a life of where David had not trusted God, that he had taken timeline into his own hands and did what he wanted with who he wanted with when he wanted to do it. Okay? David has a shady past. He's a sinner in need of a Savior like every single one of us. But yet in this moment, I think just with some spiritual maturity, right, some sanctification, he submitted that, okay, it's not me. It's not me. Now, before we actually move on to the rest of that Davidic covenant, can I just ask us then, pastorally, because I think it's important, pastorally then, is there an area of your life right now that you're submitting to God, you're saying, God, this is what I want, this is what I desire, and God is saying, not right now, or not you, or that's not my timeline for your life. And are we going, okay, Lord, I trust you in that. And we're, and we're submitting to him in that. I think for every single one of us to go, uh, I'm not doing such a great job at that. I'm not doing such a great job at that. Because here's, here's what we do know about all of humanity, is that we can get sucked into the trap of being more about our little K kingdom rather than the big capital K kingdom of God. And a, a diagnostic question then to ask us is, okay, how do I know which one I am more concerned with? How do I know which one I am more excited about? How do I know which one I'm actually submitting to? Well, who's winning in your life? Is it God's word that's winning in your life? Or is it your own thoughts winning in your life? Whose name is being honored most right now in your life when you submit these plans? Whose name is being most honored? Because I'll be honest, one of the most profound and often most challenging aspects to following God is when you desire to do something that you think that God is actually 
said this is a good thing to desire, and he says, not right now. Not right now. Will we submit to that? Or is your timeline always the same as God's timeline? That's a hard question. You know, there's a, a, a pastor that I, I respect very much that he says, if you can't say amen, you better say ouch. Because when it comes to our own lives, and, and I know for many of you, you guys are, are just walking evidences of this, and you would say this repeatedly, if God gave me everything I wanted when I wanted it, it would not have gone well. It would have not have gone well. But yet in God's mercy, he said, not, not right now. There's more that I'm working in your own heart and your own soul. And, and sometimes those things we're still waiting on. Some things God gave us much later in life, and we can appreciate them and understand them and submit to them far better than what we could do when maybe we initially asked them. All right, well, let's go back to our text. Let's go, let's go back to that Davidic covenant. Because there's a couple of things that I want us to see in here. Because what we see is not only, right, David submitting to God's plan, but we also see God giving this promise that he is going to establish a king forever, a throne forever. And like I mentioned, this is why it's known as a Davidic covenant. This is God covenanting with David, saying, I am going to establish a king through your line. And that king is going to have a throne that will last forever, church. That's a forever kingdom. Now, a quick thought. With some Old Testament promises or prophecies, there's often an immediate fulfillment there, but then, as we've seen in Genesis, there's an ultimate fulfillment to come. And I think that's what we actually see here with the Davidic covenant. Because we do see David's son, Solomon, actually build a temple for God's presence to dwell in. We see him accomplish that. But yet, we also see Solomon fail to be a good and righteous king throughout his whole life. And because of his own sin and his own rebellion, actually, the, the nation of Israel is actually split. The kingdom is split. And Solomon essentially loses the throne because of it. The, the throne of Israel is lost. So we have to ask then, did God lie here? Right? Did he make a promise that was wrong in the moment? Or... Is this speaking to something more, something better? Is there a better son of David to come? Maybe there's a way to ask it. Or is there a better temple that's going to last forever that is to come? What's the answer? Yeah, it is, right? It would be, it would be a major bummer sermon if we're like, yep, we were wrong, he was wrong, let's go home. The answer is yes, there is a better son of David to come. And much of the rest of the Old Testament then is actually highlighting aspects of this king that is to come, right? Where the rest of the prophets 
start talking about who this king is going to be and start to give some wonderful detail of how are we going to know then, Lord, when this son of David, when this king that's going to last forever, when this person is going to come, how are we going to know if it wasn't Solomon? Well, let me take you to another prophecy that comes later. Probably a prophecy that many of you didn't even realize is a prophecy. And that is from Zechariah 9 9. It'll be on the screen. Where Zechariah, in this portion of, of his letter, he is giving some detail about this coming king. And we see that there is a, it's going to be a righteous king. And he's going to be riding in on a what? On a donkey. Very specific. So it says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. You see, all of the Old Testament along the way is not only telling the story of humanity, it's not even highlighting right, the people of Israel, one particular people, but yet it's also giving us this, these details that are highlighting what Genesis 3.15 was talking about. So let's piece that all together. So we have the donkey aspect. We know he's going to come in on a donkey. right? He's going to be a righteous one. But then going back, we know he's going to come from the line of Eve. Right, he's going to come through the family line of Abraham. He's going to come through the family line of David. Right? You see all these pieces coming together. And then do you know how the New Testament actually begins? The very first line of the New Testament? If you have a Bible, go ahead and turn to the Gospel of Matthew. The Gospel of Matthew. And go to verse 1. It'll be on the screen as well. Look at how the New Testament begins. When it says, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of who? David, the son of Abraham. You see, what the authors were trying to do in the very moment, in the beginning moments of the New Testament was connect everything which the Old Testament had been talking about, had been longing for, had been waiting for, and saying, he's here through Jesus Christ, the long-awaited divine king, has come. And by the way, Jesus knew this about himself. And some of the very opening words, the very first words that are recorded in the Gospel of Mark, are actually Jesus saying, Behold, the kingdom is here. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the Gospel. If we even think about Think about the language. For those of maybe you've been able to, to look at the Gospels before, you probably have seen a lot of this language of kingdom of God that, that maybe you didn't realize why Jesus was saying, the way, saying it the way that he was saying it. Let me give you some examples. You remember when the disciples asked Jesus, hey, will you teach us how to pray? Do you remember how Jesus taught the disciples how to address God as Father? going all the way back to 2 Samuel 7. The reason why Jesus was addressing him as father is because that's how this relationship was intended to look like. That's how the king was intended to speak about God 
as a father with a son. By the way, Hebrews 1 tells us the exact same thing. Jesus also taught us in that same prayer, Lord, your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That kingdom language. Or think about the Sermon on the Mount. Right? It's all about the kingdom. It's all about the kingdom. It's all over the place. And so throughout the life of Jesus, he showed us what the kingdom of God was going to be like, is like, but also was highlighting that he is the king, right? He is the ruler. He is the one who is perfect. He is the one who is sinless. He is the one, like a good king does, didn't come to abolish the law of God, but to actually fulfill it. To do the very thing that we need a king to do, and that is uphold what God has established in his kingdom forever. And for 33 years, church, Jesus lived that righteous life then that was required of a perfect king. But then on a Sunday, then on a Sunday, which we refer to as Palm Sunday now, Jesus told his disciples, he said, I am ready to enter into the city of Jerusalem, but I need to do it in a special way. I need to do it in a special way. And so what did he tell them to do? If you have Matthew open still, go ahead and jump over to verse 20, or chapter 21. Matthew 21. Starting in verse 1. It says, Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied in a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them. He will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what, the spoken, what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. So just like Zechariah had promised church, Jesus fulfilled. And it wasn't by accident, right? This was very intentional about from Jesus' perspective. It was purposeful, because why did Jesus know all of this? Well, he knew all of this because he knew the plan of God, right? He knew the plan of the king. He knew the plan of redemption. He knew it all. And so we desperately then, I think this morning, need to be reminded about how impactful the kingdom of God is for us today. Today, church. Not just then, but today. And let me just give us a quick, maybe, application to that. Why do we need to know about the kingdom of God? Well, it reminds us that God is faithful to his world. And he's faithful to his word, always. It reminds us that God's timing is always best. Always best. It reminds us that outside of Christ, there is a kingdom of darkness. You're not neutral, is another way to say it. There's only two kingdoms which you can belong to. It's the kingdom of light and the kingdom of darkness. But it reminds us that the kingdom of light rules and reigns over 
everything, church. Everything. And it reminds us, like I've mentioned before, if there's promises made, there's promises kept. And all of God's promises find their yes and their amen in who? Jesus Christ. And so we see that original promise then of Genesis move along and move along and move along even to this last week of Jesus' life. And because when he began to ride into the city, what did the crowds do? It says they cut down branches, palm leaves, right? And they actually began to, to lie them down or to wave them as Jesus actually rode into the city. And do you know what they were saying? Hosanna, Hosanna. They were quoting Psalm 118, which is our call to worship this morning. They were quoting Psalm 118. <clears throat> now, let's go ahead. If you have, go over to verse 9 of Matthew 21. Taylor, if you have that. It says, And the crowds that went before him followed him and were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Now, just in case maybe you're you're new to church or maybe just new to Bible study. Um, Hosanna is a Hebrew word. It's actually a Hebrew prayer. Basically, it's a one-word Hebrew prayer that means, God, save us. That's what Hosanna means. And so in this moment, right, as they're looking at Jesus, as he's coming in on a donkey, as he's fulfilling all this promise and prophecy, God's people, in some way, I don't know if they fully understood it or not, but those who were lining the, the corridor were saying, you, Jesus, God, save us, speaking to Jesus. And it's important to know, because why, why did they need to be saved? Why in the world did they need a Savior? Because the truth is, oftentimes, we can come to Jesus, but it's not to be saved. We can come to Jesus for a whole bunch of other reasons, right? Like maybe you just think you need a little bit of religion in your life. Or maybe you think it's going to make you a better person. Or it's going to get you out of whatever jam that you're currently in. Or maybe you're just like, I just don't want to go to hell. That's why you're coming to Jesus. Well, there are certainly good things that come from coming to Jesus. But I'll tell you, the only and primary reason that you should ever come to Jesus initially is because he's a savior and he saves from what? Sin and death, right? That domain of darkness. Listen, I'm not saying that there's not a lot of good things that come right from coming to Jesus. We have a lot of benefits. We've been looking at those as a church at different times. But I encourage every single one of us this morning, no matter where we find ourselves, make sure that you are coming to Jesus because you need him to save you from the consequences of Satan, sin, and death, in which you have participated in. Which you have participated in. And honestly, I, I, I pray then that's, when we sing Hosanna, we're going to sing a song named Hosanna here in just a second. But we would sing it saying, God, save us from our sins. God, save us from the domain of darkness, which I, in and of myself, cannot get out of. But because you are the king of the better kingdom, 
the ultimate king, the king whose throne will have no end. I want to submit myself to you as both Savior, but also that Lord, that kingship. Now, continuing in Matthew, we're almost done, we're almost done. Hang with me, verse 10. It says, and when he entered Jerusalem, it says the whole city was stirred up saying, who is this? Who is this? And the crowd said, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. Now, I would conclude by saying they were right, right? He was the prophet Jesus. He was the, the prophet in which God's people needed. But yet, what I want you to walk away with today, church, is that he was also the promised king. A title that I think will become more and more obvious as we look at these events surrounding this holy week. As we look at the cross as we look at the resurrection, as we look at the ascension of Jesus, that yes, he is a prophet, but the Bible is also emphatically clear that he is the king. And we have the unique privilege, kind of knowing where the story is going, and knowing that the king has come and is coming again, church. Let's go ahead and end there today. But remember, As we go into this week, as we go into Good Friday, that this king, in order for this king to accomplish what was laid out in Genesis 3.15, is that suffering would have to partake. That suffering would have to come before victory. All right, let's pray. Well, Father, as we just end our time looking at your word and just thanking you, Lord, for all the ways that you have you have continued to make promises and have kept those promises. And we as a people get to just delight and to be able to look at your word through the Old Testament and see how all these things that many had to wait Years and years and generations and generations to see, we get to look back at you, Jesus Christ, and see how you fulfilled them all. And then be able to know that you are ruling and reigning now. That we don't have to wait for a kingdom. We're looking forward to the full consummation of your kingdom in the days ahead. But we know that you are ruling and reigning now. So thank you, Jesus, for being the king who has come. And it's in your mighty name we pray.